The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another broadcast of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We are broadcasting from the greater metropolitan New York City area, and it is very, very cold outside. And uh, oddly enough, or not so oddly enough, I suppose, if you're in this business, this is when a lot of excavations actually do get done. Uh, We're in this tiny little window between um, the fall, which is traditionally thought of as very good archaeological excavation weather, and the winter when it uh, becomes very difficult to do this kind of work. And for a variety of reasons, uh, people are sort of trying to hurry up and finish their projects. And one of the areas in which a fair amount of archaeology gets done in the fall is in urban areas. And uh, previous episodes, especially uh, way back in the early days of the show, we were discussing urban archaeology and how it is performed and uh, how unusual uh, a lot of people feel that it is to do archaeology in an urban landscape because the assumption is that uh, what's underneath uh, the contemporary cityscape has been irrevocably destroyed and what's the point in going through a series of utility lines and wires and sewer systems and is there a possibility for recovering anything and the answer is of course there is and the discoveries and the ability we have now to do very sophisticated urban archaeology has been enhanced immeasurably by innovations in technology. We had talked about uh, urban archaeology in New York City, and today I'm very happy to uh, bring in um, an urban archaeologist from our one of our neighboring cities that's uh, a little bit farther up the East Coast, Boston. Uh, Boston, of course, as everybody in the United States should know, is probably one of the most, if not the most, historical city in this nation. And um, my archaeologist associates and colleague for today is the city archaeologist of Boston, and his name is Joe Bagley, and he received his Bachelor's of Arts degree in archaeology from Boston University and a Master's in Historical Archaeology from the University of Massachusetts Boston campus. He's conducted surveys uh, throughout the East Coast 
from Native American burial recoveries in the Everglades to historic farmsteads in northern Maine. He is the fourth city archaeologist of the city of Boston and runs the city archaeology program along with a team of dedicated volunteers from City Hall and the City Archaeology Lab in town. Along with his wife, Joe is a live-in caretaker of the Dorchester Historical Society's 1806 William Clapphouse. Joe is in the process of completing a new book uh, through the University Press of New England entitled A History of Boston in 50 Artifacts, which is scheduled to be released in 2015. I am very happy to welcome to the program Joe Bagley. Joe, thanks for appearing. I'm happy to be here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your program, how it started, and how it's evolving, and what uh, what your objectives are as the city archaeologist? Sure. So um, uh, the city archaeology program is actually in its 31st year. Uh, we've been around for quite a while now. Um, it's, it's a direct result of the massive construction project that we had in Boston, kind of infamously known as the Big Dig. Um, it was one of the largest... Um, construction projects in history, it may still be the largest construction project in history, um, but in the years leading up to groundbreaking on the actual uh, tunnel that ended up being dug through the city of Boston, um, because of state and federal uh, laws in place in Massachusetts and the country, um, archaeology was required to be done along the route of the tunnel, essentially underneath what was then a raised highway that kind of cut the city in half. Um, the result of that was essentially 2,000 boxes of artifacts, totally at least a million or more things that came out of the ground, um, spanning the entire history of Boston going back thousands of years. Um, obviously, a good deal of that was from Boston's early historical history after 1630. Uh, the collections were so large in number and volume, uh, they ended up being rest- uh, stored in one place uh, in the city of Boston. And at the urging of the state, um, the state archaeologist requested that the city of Boston consider hiring a city archaeologist to basically take off some of the pressure from the state uh, in regards to the city's archaeology uh, to manage the collections that exist that came out of the Big Dig, to do public outreach, and to essentially be the in-house person to handle Boston's archaeology, which kind of on its own was in scale similar to the state's at that time at least. Um, over the years, the the position and, and the role of city archaeologists has kind of changed a little bit with depending on what the city archaeologist was at, at the time. Um, but essentially, what I do is I'm 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 held in the city's or uh, my position is it was within the city's landmark uh, commission, which means um, we have a group of people that that work towards preserving the city's historic structures, but also the historic landscapes and archaeology associated with them. So my role is essentially to review projects on landmark properties in the city of Boston, but I also get involved when there's city property that's going to have work done, whether it be a park or um, lots that haven't been developed yet, and get involved with archaeology in those places too. So uh, lots of lots of stuff going on in downtown and the surrounding uh, more rural areas of Boston that people don't necessarily associate with the downtown core. So this is a municipal position, and I assume it's funded by the city coffers? Right. So um, so my salary comes out of the city's budget. 
Um, but the program that I run um, kind of alongside what I do, in a, and I have a regulatory side of my job where I review construction projects and that kind of thing, um, but alongside that I have what, what we call the City Archaeology Program, which is um, a public outreach and a laboratory component to the job, and that's, that's staffed exclusively with volunteers. Um, that program itself is not funded independently by the city, so um, we, we do a lot of lab work that requires bags and processing and, and scientific stuff like uh, carbon-14 dating or iron conservation, and that is funded through things like um, my speaking engagements that I do throughout the city and the region and um, the book that I'll be writing, all of, every penny of that, um, the sales from that book are going to be funding the city archaeology program. And we're looking to try to kind of expand the program but not increase the cost to the city because um, it's, a very, uh, it's a much better way to keep a program sustainable if it's not taking more money out of a public institution that doesn't necessarily have more money to be giving. And and that's that's actually a point I wanted to discuss with you. Mm-hmm. We have uh, in New York as well a city-run program. Right. Uh, they do get funding, uh, probably along the same lines. And I think this is a good point to explain to a lot of listeners that uh, archaeology uh, in urban areas falls under basically three domains, federal, state, and municipal regulatory um, precepts and and statutes govern how it's done, and it all uh, reflects the nature of the funding of a particular undertaking that will dictate exactly what the regulatory procedure is and uh, who pays for it. And I assume it's the same situation with you guys, right? That's correct. Um, so I have a lot of people that ask me, kind of, do I get involved with this project or that, or that project? And sometimes the projects, because of their funding, um, if it's ex- exclusively state or federal, um, I may not be involved at all, uh, except occasionally to be brought into comment. But I may not be reviewing it. I may not be triggering the archaeology. Um, but the flip side of that is there's projects that go on in the city of Boston that don't have state or federal funding that would normally trigger the state archaeologist to be reviewing the project, but do fall under. Um, our landmark designations um, and regulations, and therefore um, my presence and my role is in the landmark commission allows for archaeology to be conducted on properties that maybe wouldn't be under the jurisdiction of the state and federal regulations that uh, trigger a good deal of archaeology throughout the country. Well, let's talk about those types of projects for a minute because they fall into that murky situation where um, nobody, well, you, it, potentially nobody knows really who's in charge here in terms of how it's done. And then, of course, you have your infrastructure that is able to manage that and able to direct it. Can you walk us through that? Sure. So um, there, within the properties that are designated as landmarks, um, any work that's done on those projects gets submitted to the Landmark Commission, and that gets reviewed by the staff in the city, um, which would include architectural historians and myself. I'm the, I'm the only archaeologist on staff. Um, when I require an archaeological project to be done, um, if it's on a privately owned uh, property that is a Landmark-designated property, um, the, those projects usually go out to a private archaeological company to be dug. Um, and so we work, we work very hard to try to see if we can minimize the impacts to an archaeological site during the planning process because we know that um, these uh, developers, maybe even a historic site that doesn't necessarily have a budget that can handle an archaeological survey, 
uh, maybe planning a project that would have an archaeological impact, and we try to work with them to try to minimize that impact so that they don't accrue any extra cost having to pursue the archaeology. So a great deal of what I do uh, for the city is try to work on on adjusting projects so that the ultimate goal is still the same, but is done in a way that can hopefully avoid archaeology. Um, so a great deal of the projects that could eventually have been an archaeological project uh, are headed in the direction now when, while working with the city that don't have an impact. And so we can kind of avoid that. Uh, but sometimes it can't be avoided, and so on private land it goes usually out to a bidder. On public land with the city, um, as the staff archaeologist, my job is to then essentially go out and execute the, the archaeology on the project, um, which does differ a little bit from other city archaeology positions, um, such as New York City, where um, the city archaeologist in New York does not have a field component to it. They're strictly regulatory. So we're kind of... Each, each city archaeologist, it's not a lot of us, but each of us kind of have a bit of a different way that we do it, and it's based on uh, both our jurisdiction and the legal kind of laws that are existing around our position and where we kind of came from, whether we came from um, the state or from a local jurisdiction or a local law. But I guess very much like it is here in New York, if it's an undertaking for something that involves public funding, then all of a sudden an entire different set of guidelines and funding mechanisms gets kicked into into motion, correct? That's correct. Um, with state and federal funding, it does trigger our state and federal laws, um, the federal Section 106 laws, but uh, we also have a Massachusetts state law that essentially uh, duplicate Section 106, but instead of requiring archaeological considerations on federal pro funded projects, it's, it's state funded projects, and that triggers quite a bit of archaeology. Uh, somewhat ironically, I don't get involved with all of those projects usually because my jurisdiction is, is, is more on the landmark review side. Um, I, see, uh, I see. We have some overlap with the state, but not a, a, not a tremendous amount. Um, and then in some cases, city projects that are done with city funding that are not on landmark properties, that's where it really gets murky, where my jurisdiction isn't in set in stone, and we have to really work hard with um, whatever agency it is that's doing the work on the city property to see if we can kind of squeeze in the archaeology because, um, because I'm strictly reviewing uh, landmark designated properties. Not every public property in the city is landmark designated. So um, I try to keep my... Uh, my ear to the ground to, to hear about projects as they occur and make sure I get in there very early in the planning and either work to avoid the archaeology or if we get in there early enough to do the archaeology before whatever part, whatever project is going through um, can happen so that we can kind of do what's needed for the archaeological site and not disturb or delay the project. Um, uh, where that comes up most often is our city parks. Um, it's some of the least developed land in the city, uh, which would kind of contain, by definition, a lot of potentially good archaeological sites, both historic and native, um, but not, in fact, the vast majority of the parks in the city of Boston are not landmark designated. So there's a lot of work that could and does happen in the parks that did not get archaeological review. Um, so we have to kind of follow the parks department and work with them when we think there could be a problem and then step in and ask, you know, in the six weeks leading up to the beginning of the project, we would like to do a, a dig there to see if there's something in the way. And we will be back with our discussion on archaeology in the city of Boston with Joe Bagley after these words. Please stay tuned.
News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We are discussing archaeology, excavations, and historic uh, legacies, if you will, in the city of Boston. And my guest today is Joe Bagley, who is the city archaeologist. And in archaeology, as in many other ventures, it very often takes a single undertaking or a single project that sort of revolutionizes the protocols under which many of these projects take shape. And for Boston, um, this was a relatively recent development called the Big Dig, which was the construction of a major series of arteries in, and the convergence of a major series of arteries in downtown Boston that uh, because of the nature of compliance archaeologies and the amount of impact that that would have in the subsurface and even in um, above-ground uh, situations, that archaeology was kicked in, I presume, at a magnitude that had never been witnessed before. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe. But uh, how how did the Big Dig evolve in terms of the archaeological compliance and implementation situation, and what kind of an impact resonates to this day? So the, the primary, the first phase of the archaeological research that went into the actual Big Dig um, was a massive undertaking of historical map review and historic document review uh, that was done for the entire uh, length of the Big Day, which I believe is uh, about two miles of 
of where the tunnel was going to go, plus an island in Boston Harbor that was where all the dirt was going to end up. Um, and that really, that really delineated areas that there could have been a potential for an archaeological site based on development, places that hadn't had and had not been developed to the point where um, archaeological stuff could be left. Um, the next phase of that was uh, essentially going out with a backhoe and scraping off linear lines across the areas of highest potential to see what types of, of things were, not necessarily what types of things, but what types of, of preservation existed under the ground in these areas because um, not everything made it to the maps. So that really redefined or really um, minimized the amount of impact an archaeological site was going to have or the archaeological dig was going to have. Uh, they essentially identified hundreds of archaeological sites uh, before the backhoe testing, the backhoe testing refined it down to about 30 archaeological sites, and those were the sites that then received um, the data recovery level um, um, excavations, which are the kind of sites that are digs that people really imagine with the, the big hole in the ground and lots of stuff coming out. Um, that that was the, the number of sites across the city, um, both downtown and in the harbor, um, were so great that m- many companies kind of formed <laughs> to, in order to actually handle the, the quantity of, of, of uh, work that was needed to be done. Um, the, 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 many of the companies are still around and, and really have their origin from these, uh, from these digs, and the people that were digging those sites are now the people in charge of the state archaeological, um, the state historic preservation offices, Many of them are professors in local universities. Uh, many of them are archaeologists on private companies. I mean, you can basically do a who's who of who the leaders of archaeology are in the New England area, and most of them, if not all of them, have direct ties to the big dig. So professionally, uh, the archaeological community um, really cut its teeth on the big dig. We're, we're still in kind of the first, first wave and the first generation of professional archaeologists in North America, um, they're all reaching retirement age now, but they're really, the big day kind of ushered in the first group of New England professional archaeologists. Um, so that's one side of the long-term impact. The other impact is that the sheer volume of items that came out of the ground was, is, is mind-boggling, and um, the reports that came out were, were good, uh, for, especially for the time. They came out in the mid to late 80s and very early 90s, um, but Archaeology as a science evolves over time, and we have. I, I tell people when I'm when I'm trying to convince people that these collections still matter. The questions that were asked as researchers in the 1980s are just different questions than people ask today. But the stuff that's in the ground that was dug then versus if we went back to the site today would be the same. So we get to go back and look at the the the, the million plus artifacts that came out of the ground and ask new questions over time. Um, so a great deal of the work that I do today in, and my volunteers do is we're going back to the old collections that came out of the ground and reprocessing them by today's standards, which usually is a much more in-depth uh, catalog and sorting process, so that researchers, whether they be the local university students that are all looking for masters and PhD topics or comparative stuff that's going on all around the country, can come to our resource in, in, in Boston and use that data that we have, which is really the core archaeological assemblage for Boston, um, and, and get new information out of it and ask new questions. In terms of 
the municipal infrastructure for archaeology, how did the big dig basically reorganize the compliance statutes and, and the compliance protocols? Because it does take a, a, an undertaking or a venture of that magnitude to really restructure the, the, the paths of compliance and the paths of funding and, and, and the, right. the, the general domains here. How did that work and how did it start and how did it finish? In other words, how did you re- basically have to remap how you think about these things um, based on that experience? The, the state, I think, had to kind of reevaluate its entire um, review parameters for historic sites, um, especially in an urban area. Um, one of the things that came out of the big dig was just how how little a spot you need in the ground to preserve um, to have an important site. Uh, we found in the middle of downtown, um, in between an area that has seen massive development in the 1700s, 1800s, I think in the 1600s, um, despite four-story brick buildings being completely surrounding the area, we had a a brick-lined privy or an outhouse um, about four feet by six feet and five feet deep that was found intact in the heart of Boston in an area that was almost completely destroyed except for where the privy was. Um, And when they excavated, the archaeologists found um, an intact mid to late 17th century um, deposit from a what turned out to be a uh, 17th century woman who was the first woman to get a divorce in Boston. So we have an amazing historic record tied to her, plus all of the stuff that came out of her, out of her privy. And she was a single woman and um, a single mother, and it was just a very important site. And I think that that kind of that kind of discovery makes you have to completely redefine just how how uh, how careful you're going to be when you're doing your archaeological sensitivity studies and your archaeological requirements for development in downtown. I think that kind of set a new tone there. As far as municipal goes, um, the position that I'm in currently, the city archaeologist position, um, more or less started off at first as more of a public outreach position because we had multiple um, private companies doing archaeology around the city. Um, But that's something that they really had to focus on on doing the archaeology, getting the stuff out of the ground, recording it properly, but because all this stuff was coming out, there was a there was a real um, uh, desire from the community to hear more about what was actually happening. So, the, one of the first things that the city archaeologists did was basically became the public face of the archaeology that was going of on. Of course, in the yeah. um, and that's kind of where it is today. Um, but the the actual position was was created because the state archaeologists requested it to be created and. Um, the existing landmark commission that had been around since the late 70s um, became the most obvious place to put a city archaeologist. And um, the position itself started off as being funded by the Big Dig itself um, as part of the contingency plan and part of the mitigation. Um, the Big Dig started to fund it, and uh, my predecessors were on full-time or part-time, depending on depending on the funding at the time, and then there was a brief moment in the late 80s and early 90s where the position ran out of the big dig money because that project was wrapping up and the city was kind of scrambling as to how to fill not the position but the financial component of the position. 
and it took a great deal of work um, and convincing within the within the government of the city to eventually make the position a permanent staff level position. Um, and I think the best justification for it is just the public outreach that we do. It's not. It's a, it's a very public position where um, our biggest goal is really to get the community to understand about its own history that we have recorded in the archaeology. And one of the the easiest things I have to do in my job is to convince the Boston community that their history matters. It's, it's I don't even have to do it. It's it's already there, which is a great step to begin at. Um, and then from there, we just try to get the word out about what we have and make it relevant to this to people today. Now, how has how has that experience fashioned the way you do archaeology in the urban setting going forward? I think for for not just Boston, but the entire um, country, really, um, it set the, the the tone for what you can get out of an archaeological site. Um, a direct descendant of the Big Dig archaeology is what's going on today in Philadelphia for Route ninety five. Um, you can see direct correlations between um, the scope and the breadth and the depth, frankly, of the of the work that's being done there. Where it's a linear project, and they they went into the project knowing that they were going to have to do archaeology. They set uh, very similarly. They they made a long list of sites that could exist. They they did the original original trenching to determine how how the preservation was, and then went in and did the data recovery uh, in response to the results of the trenching. So. Um, this is the overall protocol for the scale of archaeology um, in an urban environment you can see today going on in Philly. Um, overall, I think that it also just set the tone for the fact that urban archaeology is possible and can contribute to the understanding of archaeology and that, frankly, sites still exist in urban areas because I think that I, I, I get that a lot um, from people today where they're not sure how a site could still be in the heart of downtown Boston, next to a 50-story skyscraper. Um, but we always get to, you know, point at things like the shipwreck under the World Trade Center and the uh, of course, yeah, the, the, the king underneath the uh, underneath the car park in uh, in the UK, in London, say. yeah, yeah. It doesn't take much, and um, and there could be some really important stuff, and we can't ever just assume that it's gone just because you see a lot of buildings. Um, because all it needs is a couple square feet, and you could have an incredibly important historical piece, um, especially in an urban area, because that that ties directly back to the history of the city. Uh, and we have a, such a continuous history here in Boston of being a major um, urban place. Uh, we tie directly into the history of the country pretty easily. So it's important to, to be looking and keeping our eyes out. And we will be back with uh, Boston City archaeologist Joe Bagley after these words. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkhart and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkhart every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein. We're back with my guest, Joe Bagley, who is the city archaeologist of Boston. And we have been discussing the ramifications of the big dig excavations that were undertaken in that city in the mid-1980s and how they essentially revolutionized the practice of urban archaeology, not only in the city of Boston, but basically across the United States and to some degree in many other metropolitan areas in the world, specifically uh, cities like Berlin, London, and Rome, which are having renaissances, if you wish, if you will rather, to uh, in, in, in the contemporary practice of urban archaeology. There is just a flurry of urban archaeological excavations being undertaken right now everywhere. Um, why don't you tell us, Joe, a little bit about some of the major finds that were uncovered as a result of the uh, big dig excavations and how we progressed to increase our knowledge base, uh, starting from the exposure of these areas to the analysis and synthesis ultimately of these uh, major excavations. Sure. Um, we mentioned earlier uh, one of the privies that was found in downtown in, a, in an otherwise pretty disturbed area that turned out to have this remarkably intact um, outhouse deposit from the, the late 17th century. Um, the historic records that we had associated with it identified it as the privy of a woman named Catherine Nanny Naylor, um, and she was a twice-married Puritan woman. Uh, her first husband died, leaving her quite a bit of money to, to support her children, um, but when she remarried, she uh, remarried a, a person named Edward Naylor, who was um, not a particularly uh, nice person, um, to the point where in the, the mid-17th century, she filed a petition for divorce, uh, which turns up in the written legal documents of Boston from the 17th century, which is amazing that we even have this document still, um, that cites the fact that her husband was... Um, abusing the marriage bed and uh, and very violent towards both her and her children. Um, 
And the, the, the side story to that was that 25 people came out in, in, to speak out against her husband, uh, citing things like um, catching her husband uh, running off with their maid into a tavern, into the inn, and uh, coming back out and many hours later, and that the maid eventually became pregnant. Um, and then there's also an accusation that the maid attempted to murder Catherine Nanny Naylor with henbane in her beer, poisoned beer, um, that Catherine uh, makes an accusation against her maid, um, that the result of this was that her husband and, and her maid were banished from the city, um, and, and Mary was grant, uh, Catherine Nanny Naylor was granted the first legal divorce in the colony. Um, and to have that historic background on a person that we then have the complete contents of her privy, which include, uh, because of the privy, it's got a great uh, preservation. It was clay-lined, which made it waterproof, so all the contents that went into it uh, uh-huh. slightly decomposed slightly and then reached the point of being stable. Uh, so we have things like lace and leather and fabric and a lot of metal and wooden objects. Um, we have, she was a single woman with... Um, a single mother with, with multiple children, most of them are women, uh, or most of them are girls, and we have a complete sewing kit from scissors to thimbles to uh, needles, needle cases, an actual wooden bobbin that would have contained the thread that they were using in the house, and uh, a, a sleeve from a dress uh, that all speak to both the domestic arts that these women would have been practicing at home, but also the things that they were actually wearing. Um, we have a fancy lace, and at the time there were sumptuary laws in Boston that basically said unless you were above a certain uh, financial or educational status, you weren't actually legally allowed to wear things like um, too many ribbons and great boots and large uh, and uh, complete capes. Um, but we are finding those objects in the in the privy that shows that Catherine was a very well-to-do woman that broke some rules of Puritan Boston. Um, but we find these high-end goods that she would have been able to wear legally, uh, but we also find things like 250,000 cherry and peach pits in one privy, which is an unbelievable number of, of fruit pits. Um, not that she passed them through her body or her family did, but that they were tossed out into the privy as refuse along with a lot of other garbage. Um, but we believe based on that that she was uh, brewing alcohol in her house from cherry wine um, making cherry wine, which was illegal as a Puritan in Boston. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. We also found a, a wooden bowling ball, um, more similar to a lawn bowl than like a ball and pin that we have today. Um, also an illegal object to be owned in Boston because bowling was illegal. Puritan laws, many of them were just anti-fun, um, prevented them from doing this. But we had this wealthy woman who was able to, through her wealth and influence, break some of the rules of Puritan Boston. So we get to kind of we have the written record that says, the historic narrative of Boston that says everyone was Puritan and they followed the rules and they're very religious, but the archaeology shows a much more nuanced uh, view of things and then throw in the historic record with, um, with adultery and, and attempted murder. We just realize that people really have never changed through the history <laughs> of the matter well, of religion they are. <laughs> one, one of the interesting elements that I think a lot of people are interested in is the intersection between the historical documentary record and what you actually see when you do the excavation. And obviously in historical archaeology, there is clearly a series of checks on the interpretive potential of the archaeological record because you have written accounts. And uh, certainly based on what we've done here in New York, 
um, and, and I am assuming this is the same in Boston, same everywhere. People who were literate at, uh, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th century were extremely literate. Mm-hmm. And they describe things in very, very great detail. I think you probably are seeing the same thing in your records. And how is that merging with the actual uh, archaeological finds? And are you able to get sort of a step up in terms of trying to interpret these things based on what the historic accounts are telling you? Yeah, they're they're truly amazing. And we're, we're so lucky in Boston that many urban areas have such detailed map and historic documents that we can refer to to get the fundamental data about these places and the people. Um, but there's there's some limit to that. I mean, we do have sites where uh, we just excavated a site a few years ago where we have the neighbor of the site that we were we were excavating was Jane Franklin, who is Ben Franklin's sister, and she actually describes her neighbor's house in her in some of her journals. And so we can actually kind of use some of the data from these letters between Ben Franklin and his sister to interpret the house right. that we were actually excavating in Ecuador. Um, you can't get that in rural areas for in some cases because you just don't have that density of people to really be talking about neighbors and getting that glimpse. And, and, and because we're in an urban area, we also have a lot of people that, that preserve their documents because they're, they're the movers and the shakers of the community. Um, but then we also have to kind of treat everything with a little bit of skepticism. And sure, maps are fine, but why was the map drawn and who's the map for? But also the written document, the people that were literate were extremely literate, but they were the few. And they were recording what they were recording, sometimes for political gain or um, to make themselves seem particularly good. And so when we're doing a lot of the archaeology, especially in, in things like this Caffeinary Nailer Privy, what it, what it lets us see is... Sure, Catherine turns up in a single historic law case, but her story really isn't represented elsewhere. And so uh, we get to kind of use the archaeology to see what was it like to be a woman in Puritan Boston. We have artifacts directly associated with her children, and they certainly weren't writing their own histories down. Um, so we get to see aspects of that part of their life. And we have slave sites in Boston from... Um, various uh, places where there were slaves living on sites that and the slave would have probably been contributing many of the items to the uh, refuse deposits in the privies and in the yard. Um, how are they influencing the archaeological record um, just by their mere presence? And can we see that? Because the documents, the written history just doesn't really include that information from a person, from them. Uh, we may have people related to them or people... Um, people who employed them or were their owners, but not necessarily um, their own voices. And we can, we can sometimes get some, a glimpse of that voice through the trash that they left behind, not realizing that archaeologists were going to be digging up their outhouse 300 years later. What about uh, information that you have gotten, not just about particular individuals, but also about how the city ran and what the infrastructures were, sewage lines, fire departments, water systems? Were you able to get any information on how those, those were running in the particular points in time, historically? Yeah, we um, we just excavated a site in uh, 2013, which was the backyard of a 1715 house right next to Old North Church, which is the Paul Revere famous church. Um, we were really anticipating finding an intact early 18th century house site, and in some ways we found an early 18th century house site, but we didn't find it was an intact one because what had happened was when the house was first built, the backyard was excavated out to put in 
a water drainage line um, that would allow the water that was coming into the yard to be kind of flowing underground and, and going out to um, uh-huh. where it, actually, I actually don't know where it went actually to be honest in the cistern and some other things um, but that, that line failed and so it was replaced in the late 18th century um, and so we can actually when we, did, when we dug the site we found that the site had been dug twice once when it was first dug uh, three times. The first time was when it was dug for to put in the original drain. The second time was to replace the drain, and we were the third time. And so we could actually, one, the site got jumbled, which was frustrating, but we had the, the complete 300-year history kind of jumbled together, and we're still trying to tweeze out the different aspects of time through that jumble. But when we were done excavating, we had this beautiful network of of drainage that I think probably only an archaeologist would love, but it was really interesting to see kind of how how the people of Boston needed to use these drainage networks um, through uh, ceramic pipes and an older one that was brick and slate um, and all draining into a central cistern that was in the backyard that nobody had ever known was there. Um, and right. that's such a mundane part of daily life, but it was such an important part of daily life back then that people were, were in Boston where we have clay soils, they were really having problems where the water coming off, uh, off in, during rain was not seeping into the ground quickly and it was ending up in their basement and, and they had to react to that. Right. And we'll, we'll be coming back with our final segment with uh, Joe Bagley after these words. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you are a dreamer aspiring to realize your dreams, join host Michael Friedlander for Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference. For Michael, to be a winner doesn't mean you must have finished first or must have great wealth, fame, and lots of toys. Instead, It means you must have realized your dreams without cheating or acting unethically. It means you must have made a difference for the better in the lives of those you've touched. Tune in to Dreamers, Winners, and Making a Difference, live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schildenrein, and we are back with a very fascinating discussion on the urban archaeology of Boston, and my guest is Joe Bagley, and he has been discussing some of the very intriguing finds that were made as a result of the Big Dig, which was a uh, highway improvement project of massive proportions in the city of Boston in the 1980s. Joe, uh, in this last segment, I'd like to ask you about where you see urban archaeology moving in Boston and just generally in terms of what kind of directions we are going to be taking and what to look forward to in terms of how excavations will proceed and what kind of interpretive potentials we may have based on things like advancing technology and the new methods that are becoming sort of de rigueur in archaeological circles these days. Sure. Um, in, in urban areas, and especially in Boston, um, so much of the archaeology that gets done is such a direct result of development that, um, that archaeology kind of ebbs and flows with the economy. So with the economy starting to come back, we're seeing, especially in Boston, we're seeing a lot of new development. And I think that what we're going to start seeing is more archaeology happening in urban environments, um, as um, as people go back to areas that maybe have fallen on hard times, not necessarily recently, but maybe in the 70s, 80s, um, and start to redevelop those areas, um, then we start to see the the increase of of new um, archaeological projects coming out of that. And so, um, I think that one of the biggest things that's really going to be helping us and is actively helping us now is uh, new technology like ground penetrating radar. Um, we're already seeing that being used here in Boston. Um, this week, I know there's a project going on in Boston where the the property is um, is a landmark designated property, and they want to do some work um, to build a community garden. And we're concerned about the impact the garden may have on the ground. Um, the area was recently cleared, unfortunately, with a rather large uh, piece of uh, machinery that disturbed the upper levels of the ground. So because of that, we, we're not as concerned about the, the upper uppermost layers, and so we wanted to see, okay, what types of deeper features, the foundations, the outbuildings that may still be in the yard, and this is almost two-acre property, so we're having 
we've, we've required a, a, a ground penetrating radar survey to be done on the property as a preliminary step in archaeology just to get an idea of where should the additional archaeology that's going to be needed on this property be focused. And that's what we can use this new technology to do to be a little bit less, let's test the whole thing because we don't know what could be there and a little bit more focused on let's test the area that seemed to be the most important so that when we are spending money on archaeology, which we do have to require in some cases, that money that's going into it produces the most um, beneficial uh, information historically and archaeologically coming out of the ground, um, which is great that we'll have that ability to kind of um, refine our technique in that regard um, today, (laughs) which is great. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think what we're going to be doing is fewer holes and probably more prospecting and and more remote sensing kind of work to be A, more efficient, and B, to basically get more bang for our buck because uh, it's it's just not very practical or even possible to to dig uh, from here to China uh, in the urban subterranean landscape. And also, because I work with volunteers a lot, um, the these types of remote sensing things, uh, from a practical point of view, turn up a lot of buried utilities, and I'm always afraid that we're going to come across something, even with dig safes involved, that um, could be potentially dangerous to an archaeological crew. And so I look at these remote sensing things as not only producing good archaeology, but also uh, becoming a new level of safety for archaeology in an urban area where, um, from my experience, uh, working in downtown Boston and even in open parkland, the utilities that exist today are extensive and everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it seems like that's certainly going to be the way to go. Um, do you see uh, a surge in this kind of work? I mean, um, is it going to be funded? Uh, are you going to change your protocols in terms of doing uh, mitigations uh, based on this type of new technology? Um, in Massachusetts, we're having a bit of a challenge where um, not everyone that makes the calls in archaeology um, outside of what where I'm at in the city um, is still is still relying and trusting of the of the results of remote sensing. Um, there's issues with uh, our our soils are very um, um, glacial and tend to be filled with rocks, which can sometimes produce uh, unappetizing results and nothing not conclusive results, and that's. In the places where that's exa- where that's happened, it's unfortunately resulted in some distrust of remote sensing. So we're actually increasing the the request to do remote sensing um, in the city because we believe it is an incredibly effective and powerful tool, um, in the hopes that it becomes a much more um, legitimate tool across the whole state. That doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't everywhere else, but uh, right. we're trying to change things um, locally uh, towards that. But I I think that the people that are we're having do geophysical survey tend to be the people that do a lot of um, work on historic properties because in many cases it's many people coming up multiple times in the city. So having it be done once shows how useful it is and that we can then use that as a precedent for the next site. And I think I think geophysical work in, in Boston especially is going to be um, a much of quickly rising tool that should be implemented almost in all cases before an archaeological survey happens. Um, on my personal surveys, where I'm doing the dig myself, we don't have a budget, so we don't have mm-hmm. the ability to hire a team, and nor do we have the ability to 
just go out and buy a machine to do it ourselves, which, which as an untrained person, it would be a terrible idea anyway. But, uh, um, but it's something that in the bigger projects that we're not doing on private land, we are absolutely um, um, going there first. And, and the clients that we've worked for uh, or worked with uh, projects that are, they're doing are really um, understanding of the, the, the usefulness of these remote sensing techniques and, and very quickly understand how, how beneficial it would be both to their bottom line and to the project itself. And that seems to be the way of the future, I would think. Absolutely. I think we're going to be heading much more in that direction. In, in in the urban landscape. Yeah, we're doing the same thing. Well, I uh, want to thank you so much, Joe, for taking the time and talking to us about uh, the Boston urban archaeological scenarios and where they're going in the future. And uh, we, we will hope to follow up on this kind of program because urban archaeology is certainly a very major undertaking and one that's going to govern where archaeology goes uh, going forward in the next uh, few years as development occurs in very tightly crowded spaces. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein, and we'll see you on our upcoming episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.